Hello everybody, James here, and uh, as yet still unnamed as we record this Shane Douglas podcast, uh, here he is, uh, the eponymous Shane Douglas himself, giving the old triple threat signal as well, we're going to be finally finishing up Barely Legal. Uh, this is stretched yes. over like two episodes or three episodes, if you want to count the preamble to the show as well. But uh, instead of uh, a load of old waffle, like other podcasts might do, let's get straight into it, Shane. So, yes. uh ECW TV Championship. The first thing I want to know about that, because uh, as we were talking in the previous episode a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about your uh, defense of that title against uh, Anthony Durante, uh, Pitbull number mm-hmm. two. And right. to sort of piggyback off that, I'd like to ask you about the importance of the ECW TV title, because you look at other promotions out there. I don't know if uh, Mid- Mid-South had TV titles. Mm-hmm. WCW had TV titles. Why was it that yep. ECW's TV title was held in such high regard, almost to the level of the World Championship? I think because Paul, A, he knew that would be the stepping stone to the championship, and he wanted to elevate that title uh, to, to seemingly give it that, like, basically top contender for the world title. So it would create a lot of unique dynamics. Uh, plus, when Robbie had it, uh, Van Dam. I mean, uh, that was a a great stepping stone for because he could. It wasn't like he was talking about like the necessarily the second best title or whatever. He was talking about as the the TV title, and our fans knew that that was just a matter of time before it was a step over into world title territory. So uh, when Anthony had it uh, for that brief time, uh, Jericho for that brief time, uh, later Taz, uh, of course, the step up. Uh, that was like sort of the, the the motion to the fans that here's your next champion. Uh, and without being tied into doing that, if say like one of the bigger companies would come and cherry pick. Uh, but Paul felt necessary that rather than having like WWF having uh, uh, you know a lightweight title or an X division title and a girls title and a division title and tag team title and this title and that title and you know title 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 everybody has a title. Uh, he wanted to make it, you know, keep that still somewhat finite. So it still maintains some specialness that if you're a champion, that means you're one of the top guys. Uh, and, and I think that's the reason he did that, uh, again, having never spoken to him directly about it, but Paul was always hypersensitive to those little nuanceful things like that. Like, okay, yeah, you might be the world champion, but you know, the TV champion is right at your heels. You know, so it's even sometimes maybe the TV title could even be more than the world title, depending on who's holding it and, and what angle they're in. Uh, I thought it was brilliant by Paul to keep that always on somebody for the most part during the runs of ECW. That any of the titles were typically on somebody that could carry them that were wear- worthy of being champions. Uh, others that didn't need them, you know, like the WWF never put belts on guys like uh, Andre, right? Because they were more a spectacle, a, an attraction. Well, Sandman was an attraction for ECW. Uh, you know, there were when we bring the guests in or things, the bigger names. You know, you could maybe switch it on there for a brief, brief moment, but it gave that feel that you know, like as if it were a real sport. If Arn Anderson steps in here and works with a TV title uh, or a TV champion, <clears throat> boy, he's at the top of the card and could conceivably win that belt and take it back to WCW. Uh, so it, it gave a lot more dynamic, and I think it, it elevated each of those titles as they were running you know, sort of, you know, in lockstep with each other, if not occasionally like this, but they were always right in that same neighborhood. And so if you were a fan of baby faces and didn't like the franchise's champion, you say, well, 
is is so chic today in America. He's not my president. Uh, uh, well, he's not my champion. Taz is my champion, or Jer- Jericho is my champion. But it always kept that bubbling up to the top. And again, I think it's the, just a brilliant tactic by Paul to keep it special and, and to sort of portend out like a, the 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 uh, the the, uh, what, uh, what, the cards, the seance cards that here's your next champion coming, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gave a chance to groom them. So it was good, good booking part on, on Paul's part. Um, speaking of which, right, so I'm sure as a, a fan like me would say, well, how do you make a title special? Well, one, you don't have that many uh, titles. So, you know, there's a lot of wrestlers going for f- a few titles. Uh, you, other things that I might suggest that was pro- probably obvious is you don't switch the titles too much and you beat strong contenders cleanly. What yes. else, more like nuanced answers, would you say makes a title special? Well, uh, the way it's pretended, right? It's, uh, I think, in the WWF, aside from their, you know, I remember there was a segment with, I forget what, what outlet they had it on, but Triple H is sitting on a bar stool and behind him is a wall of all these different current belts. There's like 12, 16, 20 different belts behind them. And I remember thinking like, okay, so you have a belt, I have a belt, they have a belt. Everybody's got a belt. You know, we're some kind of champion. It really does water it down. Then, then Vince instituted all these crazy rules. You can't say title. You can't say wrestling. You can't say this. You can't say that. Okay, well, here, I got this hunk of metal that's really important. And it's, you know, it, it's just so counterintuitive to what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and creating that specialness to the champion. I, to be honest, as somebody that's a 40-year veteran in the business, I can't even tell you right now who the champions are in either company because it's really irrelevant to the champions because the belts don't mean anything. It's a prop now that you might have it for a week. Somebody else will have it. Again, back to Paul. Keeping it on there. Uh, you, We had talked in the previous episode about Bob Backlund, and uh, you know, I wasn't going to hate Bob Backlund as champion. I was, by that time, gravitating to become a heel fan, like a heel mark. And uh, and he was very, very dry to me, a very dry delivery and everything. Loved his wrestling, but wasn't you know necessarily kind of, at that age, the character that I would have gravitated to. And what drove me bonkers is that he held that belt for seven years. And same thing with Muhammad Ali when he was younger. Um, you know, when he was champion, and I was much younger. They used to have his fights on TV. It didn't matter who Ali was fighting. I wanted him to lose, Right. And it was because he was a big mouth and, you know, the sting like a butterfly, float like a bee and all that, the great stuff, stuff that I would later emulate, right? And and and, and really understood fully uh, just how brilliant this guy was. I The, the incarnation would, to mom would be, you can love me, you can hate me, just talk about me, right? It's because uh, if you're talking about me and you're going to be if you hate me and you're going to be if you love me, that means you've got pretty much everybody in that building. There's nobody on the fence. And uh, it's just a brilliant marketing strategy by Ali. And I think Paul grew up at the same time I did. He saw a lot of those things, uh, saw a lot of the trends maybe before the rest of the world saw them and sort of jumped on it. The whole extreme thing, uh, that's extreme, this is extreme, that's, you know, this and that's extreme. Uh, But Paul also came up at the time in the wrestling business, sorry about that, um, with uh, that old school. You know, when he's saying the pictures and stuff, he's in the, he's in the buildings when there's no ring music and you know all of those types of things. So I think Paul, as as different as a trajectory as he took ECW to give the fans a different product, a lot of that was predicated off of things that he had learned in the old school, uh, but applying them in a different way. Uh, you know, Bruno was champion on and off for twelve years. Uh, uh, later, uh, uh, Backlund would have it for seven years. Typically, when the heels would get to be for a brief 
interlude to get it to somebody else. And once that started, and now it's just a sort of a champion du jour, right? It's okay. You're champion today, but tomorrow you'll have it. Uh, and the, and the belts change hands so many times it really becomes meaningless. And some people, like I said, Andre for WWE, uh, WWF, I guess then, uh, Sandman for us, Big Dick Dudley for us, 911 for us. We had a lot of attractions that the belt wouldn't have elevated, wouldn't have done, and they wouldn't have elevated the belt. So they didn't require it. Paul understood that. And if you go back and look in those seven years, it really is strange how seldom those belts changed. TV title far more than the world title, but relatively stable over the entire time of the company. Uh, and I think that meant, made it all that much more special. At the time that we took the Eastern Championship to extreme with the belt throwdown, uh, Paul was very careful. And I remember multiple times he would correct me on promos. Uh, we'd have to do the promo over because I would say the world title, just you know, rolling off my mouth. And he would say, it's not a world title. It's a regional title. You know, it's a, uh, it's a provisional title. Anything but world because it, it, it was lying. And he knew that that would delegitimize once we tried to elevate the X extreme championship wrestling belt, that if we were calling that belt world heavyweight, even though we were only wrestling in like three or four cities up in uh, you know uh, Northeastern uh, United States, that was, that was hardly, if anything, best, best regional. And uh, even though extreme championship wrestling would mimic that for some time before we'd start spreading out, it now granted to the fans the idea that he had been the NWA champion, which is worldwide, should have been the champion there. And so it elevated the title and the promotion at the same time. You can see strategy, brilliant strategy. And as as aloof as Paul made it look in his booking, uh, just winging it, uh, there really was method to his madness. And, and I think that's a, a large part of what made ECW ECW. Uh, we'll move on now as a Raven uh, backstage promo. We'll talk about Raven another time. Uh, and then there's a Taz promo. Now, he uh, basically says, Sabu, the time for talking is done. And then Bill Alfonso, Daddy, right yep. down the middle, Daddy, uh, names <laughs> uh, everyone that Taz has choked out. Now, I want to bring up some names here, but I'm leaving the best for last, really, the story. Chris Jericho, Two Cold Scorpio, Rob Van Dam, names a couple of others. And then he names Paul Valens. Former UFC uh, fighter. He never won one, I don't think, but he may have ended up in the final one of the original tournaments. Could mm. you tell us the whole story about how Paul Varlins ended up in uh, ECW very briefly and maybe what he was promised to uh, take the loss? Yeah. Uh, it, I was not involved in any of those conversations. My guess would be that it was uh, uh, either Paul assigning to him hey we're gonna bring you in you got to do this get your foot in the door type of thing i uh, would would not be below paul to tell a story to get him in there to do that um but i think that was all a, a part of his building of taz right to get taz up to the level where he could challenge the franchise for that title he had to legitimize him first out of being that taz maniac sort of cartoonishy character to suddenly being this amateur style shooter that had this, you know, we have Kurt Angle come in and do the commentary and the debacle with the upside down crucifixion. Uh, but then Paul Varlins and, and, and of course, you know, a whole lot of people through the ECW locker room, sort of like our version of, a uh, of, uh, before I think, uh, uh, Goldberg's run. And he would end up doing that to everybody. And each time it sort of elevated him a bit with Paul Varlins. It was sort of the mixing, excuse me, because, UFC and ECW, Eastern Championship Wrestling, had sort of dabbled at the same time trying to launch. At the same time that Paul was coming into book, 
these two things were running neck and neck with each other. The UFC and the ECW were sort of on this trajectory, the same, you know, nosing each other out at times. Um, Paul knew how popular it was becoming and it was going to become. And so by bringing Varlins in there, it legitimized pro wrestling. It legitimized ECW as being somewhat different. Our guys can get in there with shooters and still win, uh, where you'd never see Vince, you know, or other people try that without putting a heavy dose of work to it. And so uh, it was a good selling point, and it was a good way to elevate Taz's character in a quick way and get him up to snuff. Uh, you know, Taz, Pete was a great, great in-ring performer, uh, but he – I think he needs not just his own confidence built, but he also had to get the confidence and the understanding uh, as as building up into that, you know, that he we didn't have years to do it. We had to do it relatively quickly. And like a dream during this, the, the Taz Sabu thing just sort of falls into place. It sort of falls into our lap. And, you know, that really is the essence of great booking. Uh, you know, Dusty Rhodes' phrase on that used to be turn chicken shit into chicken salad. Uh, so you're handed, you know, a lemon, make lemonade. Um, and that's what Paul was brilliant at doing. Most of the company, like, like, let's take WWF at that time. Vince would have taken something like that and said, fire Sabu. He's out. We're going to do this instead and go a different direction. And that'd be it. The build up to that was so pronounced and the fans knew it was so legitimate, uh, that it was, you know, this had really happened with Sabu in Japan. And you know, all it took from there is some promos leading up to it, a, a little time off period for Sabu, and now the fans had come in. In other words, it was getting the smartest fans on the planet to second guess their ability to book. They were always trying to book ahead of you and think they knew where the car was going, and this is a really good way for Paul to swerve them. Do you uh, remember the story of uh, why Paul Valens uh, agreed to lose to Taz via chokeout, and it involves Missy Hyatt? Do you remember the story? No, no, I don't think I've ever heard the story. Okay, so very briefly, um, there's slightly more to the story. There's a bit of flirting, a bit of basic instinct ac- action from Missy Hyatt, supposedly. And then uh, basically, she said, "Look, I'll I'll suck you off if you if you go and lose." And then when he ended up losing, Paul Valens comes to the back, and Missy Hyatt said, Look, I, "I don't blow jobbers, buddy." <laughs> Uh, I never heard that. Wow, no. that would surprise me. But no, see, it's that's what I love is you. You know more stuff than I know. That's the, yeah, that's the first I've ever heard that. Uh, it, it, weird things happen in wrestling all the time like that. Uh, uh, yeah, it's. It, I'm sure I would have heard that if it, if if that were legit at the time. Uh, but you know, it's look. Vardens came in and did it. That, I remember we were all sort of shocked watching it. You know, that, that, you know, because again, like the UFC and W or ECW, you know, we're doing this sort of one upsman thing and trying to like nose each other out. And, uh, you know, they would come and paper our parking lots. We'd go paper their parking lots. Uh, and then they had the same trouble. We, and we sort of got roped together at the same time uh, with both of us, them and us being termed by senators in the U.S. Senate as human cockfights. Mm-hmm. And so that's when Paul had me start toning down and, you know, they had to adopt the gloves and everything and, and you know, a lot of other rules, but they did so. And I think Paul wanted to stay a little – he did stay true to the, to the form, I think, uh, of ECW. But I think our fans could sense that there was something changed. And in their minds, we shouldn't change for anybody. So I think it tarnished us in some ways, but you know, now we can play Monday morning quarterback. Would would we have ever gotten to pay per view had we not done that? You know, the what if questions. But uh, getting Varlins in, I I only had a few brief discussions with with Paul when he came in. Seemed like a nice enough guy. Um, 
but I, but when he made him tap out, uh, that's when uh, we were all shocked. It shocked us in the dressing room. So, you know, I thought for sure it would have shocked the fans. Uh, now we're going to move on to the first, well, the first match of this episode that we're going to look at, uh, the grudge match, because uh, I like doing it in the Bob Ortiz voice as well, the grudge match yes, of yes. the century. <laughs> really builds it up. It's great. Yes, uh, sir. Uh, build up. Uh, it's built up over a year, this uh, feud, uh, this final match. Uh, give us the history between Taz and Sabu, not only professionally, but personally, because weren't they teaming like really early in Eastern? And maybe even yes. beforehand, I don't know. Probably not beforehand, <laughs> but... Teaming until the time that uh, Sabu had gone to Japan and he was in demand in Japan and he had it figured out to where he would be able to get back in time for the show uh, that he and Taz were to work tag teaming on. And so that night, Paul, when he didn't show up and I forget, I he had recently told me it was flight delayed, something happened, whatever. It's, it kept him from getting there. And he then was really pissed that Paul went out and threw him under the bus and, you know, basically made him the job guy to, to this whole angle. It would later prove to be a brilliant move again, you know, making chicken salad out of chicken shit because, you know, Paul was, was genuinely handed lemons that night when he didn't show. So he had to do some quick booking on the fly and best to lean into it. than it's pretend it didn't happen as most promotions would have done before. Um, have Taz go out and say, he doesn't need a partner or whatever, that kind of thing. And But by going out there and having lean into it and overtly talk about it, verbally discuss it in front of the fans, Sabu's fans, just about everybody in that building was a Sabu fan, uh, sort of took that like a little bit of like, hey, you're throwing our hero under the bus type of thing. So it created the dimension within the audience. And then the slow, steady buildup of that, which is uh, for you promoter one or uh, booker wannabes out there, Go back and watch how that thing is built. It's masterful in each segue of this. And over this 14 months, I think it was, there were multiple interludes along that way that say, I might be in the ring with Bam Bam doing something Taz or Sabu hits and something and Candido hits and then someplace Taz hits at the end. And each one of those segments, when you watch it, ask yourself after you've watched the segment, is anybody worth less after that segment. It's a brilliant pieces of booking that each way along that path, everybody that goes into this angle comes out of this angle worth more. And so for the 14 months it's happening and the pay-per-view had been teased for so long that the, I think the ECW fans got to the point of, okay, yeah, right. It's never going to happen. And then it not only happens, but this gets announced as the main event for the first uh, pay-per-view <laughs> or what I would have called the Nirvana land for a professional wrestling promotion. So uh, luckily during that, that pay-per-view I was on earlier in the show. So I was able to get cleaned up and get upstairs to the crow's nest to be able to actually watch the match. I, I've told you before, and I will multiple times to these uh, discussions we have, I, me watching a monitor, it's sterile to me. I can't get a real feel for it. So I need to have eye on, even if it's peeking through a curtain, I need to be able to look at it and feel it. And uh, when they stood at the beginning face-to-face in the ring. I, it sounds like I'm making this up. The hairs on your arms stood up, and you could feel static electricity. There was a in the air. All they had to do at that point was that, and the place was going to blow the lid off the place. Because those 1,100 fans believed they were never going to get this match because Sabu had been fired, then he was brought back, and then there was all this other stuff going on between tease, 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 and now here they are face-to-face on day one pay-per-view. 
It was electric in the building. And, you know, the ends justifies the means. However we got there, whoever had to be thrown under, under whatever bus to get there, it worked. And, you know, we often talk about, you know, did it work, didn't it work? If the building was packed, if those fans were electrified, if we if it gave us a decent enough rating on pay-per-view, and it did all of those things, it met all of those benchmarks, then it was definitely the right thing to do. And uh, they and those two, of course, put in the match. You know, they, they delivered when they were in the ring. Um, it was the first time I think also the fans saw Taz really selling for any prolonged or protracted period. So suddenly the invincible man does have an Achilles heel. He is human. And, uh, you know, all of those little facets that, that go into you know, my booker's brain is thinking of this and looking at this and thinking like, boy, that gives you so many tools to work with after this. So many things we can do beyond this. And of course the Fonzie thing would be brilliant down the road. With uh, that being said, is this the first time you've ever seen Sabu tap out? Or does yes. he pass out? I can't remember. I watched it a month ago. I, oh, I think he does tap, but it's like as he's passing out. I think mean, he like does something with his hand and, and, and taps. Uh, if I'm wrong on that, please correct me. But uh, yes, it, it was the first time the fans saw what they couldn't believe happened. But again, look at what they had done. Paul had done during this 14 months with Taz, tapping everybody out. The, every single fan walking in that building that night, whether they wanted Taz to win or Sabu to win, there wasn't one of them that would have believed that would be the finish. And so, you know, that is great booking when you can take those fans, especially those smart fans, on that kind of a 14-month ride, now have another 14 months to play off of this. And so many other tools have now been created just because of the way we've laid this out. That's great booking, and it's booking I don't see anymore. Uh, everybody out there should be taking a lesson. I'd like to give you a word, Shane, and the word is flux. Now, uh, I'm a big Breaking Bad fan, and I think one reason why Breaking Bad's so fantastic is because the uh, uh, Vince Gilligan or whoever's written that episode, he didn't write them all, uh, he gives you what you want for a minute, and then he immediately yeah. changes the dynamic again. Pulls it and back, then, yeah. exactly, pulls it right back. So uh, why I mention this is because then Rob Van Dam turns up at the end, strikes Taz, and then Bill Alfonso turns out he's with Taz. and uh, Sorry, not Taz. He, he dumps Taz for Sabu and Rob Van Dam. And there yes. you go. You've seen the match that was building for 14 months. And guess what? Everything is fresh once again. Yes. The dynamics have changed. And, uh, yes. and and I used the Breaking Bad thing, so just watched it for like the tenth time all the way through. But that's the, the that's sort of the similarity between Paul and that show and any great show is that it doesn't leave you settled, it doesn't leave you comfortable, but it's always sure. satisfying when the dynamic changes, and then you, it gives the audience something else to yearn for. Oh, absolutely! It's to me the biggest thing with Breaking Bad, and I love the show too, is the incredible character development and growth through season one and season six. You know, this guy that's afraid of his own shadow by season six is a full-fledged drug kingpin murdering I'm, 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 guy. I'm going to be a geek now. It was five. Yeah, it's okay, five. It's, <laughs> I'm, I, so, I'm I, sorry, I, Shane. I, I couldn't, yeah, yeah, I couldn't yeah, <laughs> Chair shots, right? It's, it's always my excuse. But yeah, I mean, you go back and you watch that from first season. And my son hadn't watched it. I said, don't skip. Go right to the first season and watch it all the way through because everything that comes up later is a is an Easter egg being dumped in there for a reason. It's brilliant, brilliant writing, and I think you're right uh, that every as soon as uh, uh, Rob hit the ring, everybody forgot about Sabu just tapping and losing. Right, it now became something else, and so as before they could even think about what happened, boom, 
they're switched over now. Here we are in story two, mm-hmm. season two, and what's going to happen now. Uh, again, I, I as everybody, great respect for Paul's booking. And I, I think there were times when it, it bordered on being brilliant. Uh, and there were selected times when it was brilliant. And I think this angle between those two to launch the first pay-per-view and to launch into this new heel stable and this new dynamic, new story, that's about as pitch perfect of booking as you can get. It really doesn't ever get better than that. Uh, having said that, Taz and Sabu, or especially Taz and probably Sabu as well, I can't remember if I've asked him or not, may have had some genuine antipathy towards each other. I don't know mm. why. Was it just because Taz didn't get along with anyone at that time, or was there something <laughs> something that just happened between the two? I, well, I think it was set the way that the, the promo, the original Heat, was the promo that uh, uh, Taz hit the night that Sabu could no show. Sabu took that as a uh, you know betrayal. You know, like it was throwing him under the bus. And like I said, I, I could see that from his point of view. You know, sometimes travel crap like that happens, and it just you know it just develops that way. Um, but you know, it was, it was the right thing to do from Paul's point of view too. I mean, these are not competing interests, right? It's not like one. Well, I'm, I'm choosing this one over that one. It is, excuse me, it is Paul looking and saying, what cards do I have here? What do I have in my hand? And I thought I had the ace, but the ace didn't show up. Now I got to play my hand. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's nothing else he could do at that point. But the thing with Paul is, was he didn't necessarily fully articulate. He would give general flow direction, like this is where we're going with this angle or that way. Uh, but he would never say, okay, month one, at the end of month one, this is where we're going to be. And then that was not, you know, Paul was nowhere near that professional. Uh, but I think I think it kept him floating on his feet and kept us fluid that we could switch on the dime like that. That was the first thing. I know there was heat from that. I don't think that they just personality-wise clicked. You know, Taz was pretty much the straight edge. Sabu wasn't. And I think that there was a dynamic there with that. Uh, if you watch at times in the matches when they are tag teaming, uh, there's points in the match where you almost get the feel like they're each trying to outshine each other instead of working together as a team. And I think that bespoke of the type of personal uh, relationship they had. I don't mean imbue that they were hated each other's guts or anything. I think there was just that I'm better than you feel, you know, and I'm going to go out and prove it. Uh, and then when the, the Taz promo that threw him under the bus, I think that the Sabu was a betrayal. Uh, the way he was trained by Sheik and everything that you just didn't do that kind of thing, and I think it was a bit nearsighted on 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 Sabu's part. Uh, you can see, though, in hindsight, by this time, the guys in the dressing room that had been around a bit were sort of catching on to Paul's games, right? Like the the, the games that, in my respect, were unnecessary. We had all bought in. None of us had to be swerved or tricked into doing something, uh, at least on the top of the card. And I think there was some feeling of that from Sabu, like he. This is what Paul wanted anyway, and he could have just told me and we would have done it. And, you know, I think both from Sabu's side. Taz, I, you know, the, the idea you like jokingly said earlier about like nobody got along with him. Excuse me. This uh, seltzer water blows you up. Uh, but anyway, I got along great with Taz. Uh, I know Chris and uh, Bammer did. You know, Bammer would have done two jobs to him if he hadn't. Um, uh, I found Taz to be a pro in the ring. Um, I can't ever say anything negative about his performances, his promos. Um, there were some other things in the back that, you know, would, that were just people things, you know, that might turn somebody else off. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of that for me. If you had somebody else interviewing here right now, it's like, yeah, Shane guy was, uh, but 
you know, it's when you're doing a wrestling promotion, and it goes back to Bill Watts. Nobody wants just to have a whole bunch of the same type of guy. It's it's that that multiple mix that makes all that chemistry work and get that feeling of almost tension that's going to explode. Paul would exploit that as he damn well should have for a company that size. Uh, so I, again, I think in the, in the end, whatever the nuts and bolts were that went into the hatred or dislike between them, uh, it all worked in the end because when those two were standing face to face in that protracted period, just this, it's literally the hairs on your arms are standing up. And even like when I say it now, I'm looking, you can see him again, like doing it right now, you know, it's, because I'm in my head remembering being behind that curtain and that feel, that was the first time in that building I'd felt that static, you know, where it's as soon as these two touched me, I, I, and they're a big party. Boy, I wish I was in the ring because what you could do with that, you know, because it's just at that point, just, you know, taking candy from kids. Okay, so the uh, first of two main events, and just before Joey Styles announces Tommy Dreamer as guest color commentator, why he was there, there was no, he didn't say anything. Uh, and Joe, uh, Joey Styles stares at Bueller's bottom, and the crowd chants, "Show your tits," which I just, I just love mentioning. Uh, yes, uh, just. I'm sorry, I missed the nineties. What can I say? <laughs> uh, Three way dance to wrestle Raven for the ECW World Title straight afterwards at Stevie Richards versus the Sandman versus Terry Funk. Uh, I don't know if I asked you this before, but how is uh, Terry doing these days? Because I know he's battling some health issues. Yes, I had just spoken to somebody that had gone to one of the uh, to his birthday party. He's been to like the last 10, 15 years. He, he goes there and they have birthday parties. <clears throat> and he said that on the day of his birthday, Terry was was sharp, uh, you know, was been to it, knew everybody, that kind of thing. And then uh, the next day, not so much. Uh, so my takeaway is, you know, you know, the the mental health may be there, may not be there. The last I'd spoken to him was with Tommy Dreamer on the phone, and he was Terry Funk, crisp as a cue, funny as can be, and uh, you know, but by the time you get up to that that advanced age, especially with what we've done and what he's done in his career, uh, if you go back and watch those matches of him in ECW at fifty three, uh, you know, being in that neighborhood right now, it 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 astounds me that he could perform at that level. Uh, you know, always in command, uh, seemingly rarely blew up out there, which at that age is really, really amazing. Um, but also took some damn hard bumps. Uh, one time I know we were in a, uh, I think it was a tag match with him, uh, and Tommy and me and Brian Lee and Tommy are on the floor fighting and Terry climbs to the top and does his pose, does the backward moonsault to the floor. And because Terry's so long. Like when we caught him, we, instead of catching around the waist, we caught his legs and his head, you know, his torso and upper body, of course, swung down and his head hit the concrete. And it sounded like a bowling ball being dropped from 20 feet. And my first thought was we just killed Terry Funk. Uh, and he got up and just started beating the shit out of all of us, right? It's uh, you stupid son of a bitches. It's uh, <laughs> uh, so, so classic Terry. But I, but I, you know, I, I'm, I, what I'm hearing now saddens me. Uh, but look, I think if Terry were here right now and on this conversation, he would say he wouldn't want anybody out there to shed a tear for him. He lived his life to its fullest. Uh, to be honest and full disclosure, when Vicky died several years ago, I thought Terry was going to be one of those lovebird things. You know, like Vicky's gone three, four, five days later because they, and the entire time I've ever known Terry Funk, if you were talking to Terry, 
within 10, 15 feet, Vicky was someplace hovering around, right? Vicky was one of the boys. Everybody loved her. And so when that happened and he survived through that, I thought, okay, he's going to be good. But he's been without her now for a while. And she literally was his like his right hand. And so I think that, you know, that's a big problem for him with what he's done for his entire career, entire legendary long career, uh, you know, just jogging the head that many times is what we know about CTE. Uh, I would suspect that part of a whole lot of us are going to be slobbered a little bit earlier than we hope to. And uh, the fact that he's made this age and still has good days and now some bad days, uh, as tough as he is, he wouldn't shock me if he stuck around for another 20 years. And it wouldn't shock me if he wants to be with Vicky uh, tomorrow. Uh, breaks my heart because uh, he's such an incredible part of our business. Uh, you know, one of the that one of the pieces of the fabric of professional wrestling, that whole family. Um, but you know, he's left us an indelible mark on this business, and something that wrestling fans can forevermore uh, just sit down and put some popcorn and watch a Terry Funk match and just be amazed. And for those of us that got the 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 true blessing of learning with him and working in the ring with him, I think is. Uh, you know, one of the real blessings of my career to having had the opportunity to learn from with people like that. And uh, so, you know, long, sorry to be so long winded about it, but like, mm. I think Terry deserves that is that he uh, good days and bad days. I think more good days right now, still than bad. Uh, but it's, you know, for anybody that's known Terry to see him with a bad day in 365 is, is a hard pill to swallow. But he, if he were sitting here, I know damn right well, he'd say, what the hell are you crying about? You know, I'm still alive and all that kind of stuff. Terry Funk is Terry Funk and there's only one. Mm. Uh, I think it was you many years ago, or quite a few years ago, gave an interview and um, probably with Sean Oliver maybe, and is talking about Terry Funk and I think the phrase is crazy like a fox. Was that you who yes. said that? Yes. He, uh, I had I it was in one of my spells where I was just so blah, sick and tired of all the bullshit in the business. I'd always prided myself being a pro. If you need me to lay down, I, I may push back and say, I don't think that works because, but if you say, this is what we need, you're signing my check. Ergo, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm not going to fight you and get fired over it. And, uh, uh, so I called him one day at home and I'm gone a 20 minute tangent, just cussing up a storm about the fucking business. And how do you, how do you fucking last these pieces of shit? How do you don't want to rip their fucking head? I mean, I'm just going on and on and on. And he goes on like a 10 minute explanation after I finally shut up. And he's well, goddamn Shane, I gotta tell you, there's only one way. He's going, are you listening to me, boy? And he keps on saying, are you listening to me? And I went, yeah, Terry, I'm listening to you. And he's going on and on. And this goes on for like, 10 12 15 minutes and he keeps saying are you i said yes terry i'm listening to you oh my god damn you gotta be the only way you can do it in this business shane you gotta, you gotta be god damn, are you listening to shane yeah the only way you can do it one way is you gotta be crazy shane you, you gotta be crazy like a fox understand what i'm saying DJ? and i was sitting at home at the phone i went like like i've known terry at that point for like 15 maybe 20 years i'm going that's all a work I had no idea. I'd never seen him break character like that. And he only broke it for that like three seconds and then right back into the, you know, crazy as a loot thing and uh, uh, crazy as a coot thing and, uh, and you know, went on his way. And I learned from that. I'm like, oh, I get it. Put that facade up. So when I would go to WWF in 95, that's what I would do. Exactly him. I'd go crazy on the way to the airport and play that character and until I got home. The only problem was it was mentally, emotionally, and physically draining to, to maintain that character over that stretch of time. Mm -hmm. And for fans out there that don't understand portraying a role like that, to stay in that character that long, it is it it wears you to a nub. It's because it's not you. You're you're pretending. You know, you're acting, and it's it's just it sucks 
out of you. Uh, but I learned that from Terry Funk. One other thing I learned from Terry Funk. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, we could do episode after episode, and maybe we will one day <laughs> yeah. on Terry Funk as well, I'm sure. But yes. uh, we'll go back to the match, and as I say, Stevie Richards versus Sandman versus Terry Funk and the BWO company, Stevie, including 7-Eleven. I don't remember that character at all. Uh, with a camcorder, yes. so that would be the uh, six uh, rip-off. And some dude who's meant to be Dennis Rodman as well, I think. Yes. Uh, the Sandman entrance... Uh, but, oh, you can't watch it on the WWE Network. I know the copy that I sent you was from the pay-per-view feed. I watched it on the network thing, and oh, I tell you, the difference it makes. Terrible. The mm, difference yeah. it makes when that music is overdubbed, but we'll actually talk about that another time as well. Uh, Terry Funk has some weird knockoff of the Eagles on the WWE Network version of it as well, but um, liberal use of a ladder, including Terry Funk spinning ladder attack and Samman flipping the ladder into Stevie and then into the crowd. Mm. Now... I mentioned at this point, I'm surprised that ECW was not sued more for <laughs> certain things like this, where the ladder just went boing straight yes. into the crown and could have smashed someone in the head. I mean, yes. how many times was ECW sued? Do you know? Oh, I don't know how many times uh, I had heard at the time because I wasn't there the night of the branding incident with Mick Foley mm-hmm. and the fire that burned the fam. But my understanding of it was that fan got free tickets and like a bunch of merchandise and was just happy as a pig and shit to be part of it, you know, and, and that really did save us because there were a lot of times ECW could have got sued. I know there was a one lawsuit. Just double check this. No, two lawsuits involving me and Francine. Uh, like I said in last week's episode, I'm not going to get you pissed off and then get and then beat you up because you're pissed off with me. <clears throat> and in uh, Downingtown, the Downingtown Farmer's Market was a tiny building. And by this time, ECW was really chugging. <clears throat> Even though this was on the, you know, less than an hour probably from Philadelphia, it was a completely different crowd, but still playing the same rules the ECW crowd would be. I'm sure some people the same. Uh, but the entranceway in the Downingtown Farmer's Market was about, I don't know, three, four feet wide. Uh, you know, so any fan could get you, it, you know, it wasn't, it was just important. So we would go out with what, what I would term a phalanx of uh, security. One here, one here, one here, one here. And Franny always walking behind me, keeping her head down with her hand in my tights. Because I told her when we first started working together, if something goes south out there, I'm the fullback. Just hang on for dear life. I'm going to get me and you to the dressing room. And, uh, so she's walking behind me, and when I'm walking, I would keep my head down to, so you don't have a the the, the area to you know. I'm not going to give you my face to throw a punch or spit or whatever. And uh, I'm looking over the top of my eyes, and I see a girl on my right, uh, left side of the entrance. She's standing on her chair, leaning on the rail, and she's like got that look on her face. She's going to take a swing, right? So as I near her, I sort of just pulled myself a little bit further this way, and I go past her. And then I feel myself pulled to a stop and I turn around and I look at the girl, she swings and I pull my face away and she swings past my face and Franny who's behind me with her head down, hold my tights. She slugs Franny in the forehead and because it missed me. Well, Francine, <laughs> you bitch. And she slugs the girl and they get into a tussle. By this time, security has grabbed us and yanked us. Paul came out and pulled my hair and got us to the back. I'd get the guy she was with smacked me in the face with a chair while I was bear hugged. And uh, I kept trying to get back out the ground where to go kill somebody. And uh, our security, Mark Shapiro, had kicked that girl out. And he should have had her arrested because she attacked us. Well, she went home and she told her mom some BS story that me and Francine beat her up. 
And so her mother calls the state police. And by that late that by the time we're getting back to the hotel that evening, our head uh like ticket taker or like our sort of our manager calls and says, uh, Debbie Beaumont, by the way, she said, uh, hey, the state police just called. They want to come and interview you and Francine in the morning. I said, for what? So I don't know something in the building tonight. So, you know, Francine, I was like back to sweating bullets. Like she, you know, she's really nervous. And I said, first of all, take your fake nails off, get down and put dirt under your nails, you know, like so you can't be accused of scratching her. As uh, you know, and we're getting everything set and ready to go. So I got on interview first with this guy, and she then goes down next, and the next thing I know, charges are filed. And uh so the guy was there just dotting his eyes and crossing his T's. He's going to file the charges because he thinks he's going to get the world heavyweight champion and make his sergeant bars, I guess. So that was the first lawsuit that I was aware of with us. The second one was a lawsuit in Allentown where a we were wrestling Tommy and Beulah. Beulah pins me. We get heat after the match. Rude hits the ring. We powder. Split the ring. And I get to the back, and Franny's stuck behind the ring. And Rude is, <laughs> you can see from 100 feet away, Rude is really pissed. And he's screaming, get your bitch out of here. So I'm I'm like walking forward, like going, Fred, see, let's go, let's go. And I'm not paying attention to the fans. At some point, this 15-year-old blonde girl on my left spits a hawker in my face. Mm. And I said, what the fuck are you thinking? And uh, this guy next to her, big, fat, obese guy next to her, right? Hawking one up. So he... Uh, he goes to spit and I turn my face, he spits on me, and then he sucker punches me and turns the run. Why well, <laughs> like in the arena, run. I jump over the railing going after the guy. Yeah. And uh, well, by the time I even got to the guy, I couldn't get my arms around him. That's how big he was. And my security guy had jumped over Big Joe, the big tall guy, bear hugged me from behind and turned me away. And when the guy kicked me in the elbow and caused that surgery, and uh the dressing room emptied out, pulled me over the railing made a circle around me and dared anybody to come through it. I'm being taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And I see two cops with this guy. And I stop and I said, that's the guy attacked me. I'm pressing charges. We go to the hospital. Long story short, this guy files a lawsuit against TCW. Unbeknownst to me earlier that night or later that night, Rob Van Dam would attack a fan. And so Paul to help Rob erases the match or erases the tape. Right. So now I've got no footage of this fan attacking me. And it's went through the court system and and up to uh they were this guy was claiming that he I, I beat him so badly he had X number of broken bones and he had a hip replacement. I mean it was ridiculous. Said I floated 10 feet in the air and uh stayed on his back for 10 minutes, punching him in the back of the head. I, it just like was ridiculous, like so obviously made up bullshit. And uh so Paul calls me one day after these hearings have started and he said, Hey, uh, you know, our insurance company is going to give $10,000. Um, the building's going to give $10,000 and the judge would like to know how much money you're going to give to settle the case. I said, he can suck my fucking ass. The judge. I said, well, Paul didn't tell me the judge was on the phone with him. Right. <laughs> and so, but I, it, it really worked because I, I, I apologize. I said, look, uh, I'm sorry, your honor. I said, but, I've done nothing wrong with this guy. I said, if I did any of the stuff that he claims I did, which I'm not capable of doing, he'd be dead. 
And I said, this is clearly a quick money grab. He, he attacked me, not the other way around. His daughter, turned out it was his daughter, uh, instigated it. And neither of them been held accountable. And so the judge finally called, you know, settled to Paul and the, uh, the building settled with the guy and I ended up giving nothing. So they, I, I know there were at least two and I'm guessing probably far more. Um, mm -hmm. But Paul was again, being the son of an attorney, Paul <coughs> had a real knack and understanding of how to stave that stuff off, how to stifle it. And uh, like, for instance, we had the show in the golden dome, me versus Bam Bam earlier in the day. Uh, now that college was built in 1969 and I knew this furniture had been there pretty much from the outset because I'd been in that building 10 million times. He sat down on Bammer sat down on this old couch and the couch broke in the middle. It's just an old metal banded thing. And at the end of the night, uh, Paul said, tell the manager of the, of the venue to give you a itemized list. He put out, I, 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 but maybe wrong slightly on the number, but he put in something like that was a $6,000 sofa. You can go to any, you know, used store and get it for 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. But I went back to Paul. I said, Hey, fuck him. It can't be 6,000. I think it's 30 years old, blah, blah, blah. He goes, no, no, that's what he wants. We'll give it to him. And that's how Paul would, you know, stave off those lawsuits. So what, how many times Paul would have to settle that, that you'd have to ask him. I'm sure it was probably more than just the two that I know of. Um, but I think a lot of those fans, it probably should have been far more than what the actual number was because a lot of those fans felt like, hey, they were part of the show. Like, this is cool. I'm, I'm in the in, in the swing of things, you know. Uh, I know the guy, <laughs> at least I've been told the guy that was burned in the branding incident didn't sue, that he had uh, uh, taken merchandise and tickets and that kind of thing. And I guess that would happen quite a bit uh, more. What the numbers, I have no idea. Uh, we won't talk about the triple uh, triple threat match too much because uh, it's mostly uh, it's mostly you know ladder spots and uh, there's a bit with barbed wire whipping and that kind of thing uh, and it's somehow like wrapped in one of the streamers that the uh, was thrown into the ring where the Japanese match happens. Yeah, and uh, Terry uh, Terry Funk ends up winning uh, via a moonsault. Before we get to the main event, Raven and Terry Funk, which we will talk about the match uh, about more. Uh, I want to make mention that Sandman went in with cracked ribs. Uh, Funk was always injured, uh, but the next month, mm -hmm. Stevie Richards ends up with a career-altering injury, courtesy, sadly, of Terry Funk. I think it was another triple threat match, and Terry Funk dropped a guardrail on him in Buffalo, breaking his neck. Now, mm -hmm. uh, Stevie and the BWO were white hot at this time, and rumour suggests that Stevie was in line to win the ECW world title at some point soon after. Instead, he spends months out, and then he announces a retirement. Then he ends up going to WCW in a decision that he said he later he basically admits he regrets. He wishes he sort of like finished yep. out with ECW, but um, specifically Stevie. Do you remember the neck breaking or the uh, neck injury that day? I I didn't know immediately it was a broken neck, and then when I heard the uh, the broken neck stuff a while after, <clears throat> my immediate response was. Uh, that, that it's an aggrandizement, you know, it's like in wrestling, we're to make everything bigger than it's supposed to be. But I know that just maybe a few months ago, uh, Steve was having some issues and <clears throat> he leaving ECW, I think is where I started going, well, if he left, you know, everybody knew the other companies, even though it was more intensive as far as time was a lot less physical than say ECW was going to be in the match during the pay-per-view, the three-way dance. When Terry's doing what I call the helicopter, the, the ladder on his head, mm -hmm. and, and there were a couple of bumps on the on the ladder before that that were pretty stiff. 
Uh, but the ladder on the head uh, thing, if you watch it closely when he's hitting those guys, um, a couple of those times, they're shoot like the one time I think Stevie's standing up and he steps right into one and, and uh, looks like he's unaware of it coming to me. Uh, those are the things that you really get hurt on when you're ill prepared for, don't see it coming. And then something like that happens. Uh, but you know, when that happened now at this point, when, when, uh, Stevie had broken his neck, remember earlier, we'd had a couple other people with serious neck injuries and, you know, it started like a feeling, at least in my head, like we're pushing that we're, we're taking too many chances out there. Like sooner or later, the odds are going to go against you. Right. It's just common knowledge, just, you know, basic math. And, you know, for me, like it got to be the, the, the a scary point because you want to go out there and deliver the goods. But by that time, there was that midpoint, like 96, maybe into early 97, where the fans, if you'd bring your hands up on a chair shot, they'd boo the shit out of you. Uh, if you, you know, took the table and the table didn't break just a certain way or didn't break at all, uh, they if you didn't swing a chair to take somebody's head off, the things like that, the fans would really just, just crap on it. And, you know, it, again, like with what we were doing, we were ramping it up so much comparative to what the industry had historically been. It just seemed to me like this is inevitable. Like sooner or later, you're going to get a bad injury. Uh, and let's just hope it's not paralyzed or killed or whatever. Um, and I remember that being like an overriding thought because Stevie, like you said, they had gotten so over as the BWO and really were a fantastic and integral part of the ECW success. They were the comedy troupe in the middle of all that violence to to bring some levity into it, you know? And I think that was a necessary uh, tool for us because it helped stave off some of that pressure you know, the crowd that if you didn't, if you didn't vent some of that pressure off, you might've seen a whole lot more incidences like with me and Franny and Gary, where, you know, we threw the halo down where the, and at some point the, the odds will go, no matter how good uh, Atlas was and our security staff, that were top notch they can't watch everybody all the time and all one person has to do is just one time sneak that knife in sneak that gun in and now you got you know a real debacle on your hands so uh that was the, the biggest like as you sent me the link and i'm watching it i remember watching it in the, on the first couple of hits with the the helicopter i remember like ooh, ooh, like cringing like, like stevie stepped right into that one and then hack was going to take in it purposely right you could see him walking right into them uh and then a couple hard bump slams or you know over the rope flips and stuff onto it that kind of thing when you're not hitting flat that's really dangerous when here's the mat and there's something sitting on top of the mat and you take the bump there i'm sorry that hits you in the wrong place and you know you could break a rib break your back uh, a lot of things like that can go wrong. Uh, so it, like it was some weeks later that I began to realize that, Hey, this is legit. And he's actually leaving. And my thought was, Ooh, now we're going to lose that great, great, you know, mid show for it, for the audience, you know, that I thought was a really integral point. Uh, I always saw Stevie as a much more impactful player than the business had ever allowed him to be in. Uh, he understood it. Like he, he, and as crazy when they started the, the the new world order, the blue world order, then you know the 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 the, the kiss takeoff and all those things, they were always so timely and so relevant as you know that everybody in the building would get it instantly. And to see him leave, you know, it, you got the sense that we had a real solid young talent that could easily have stepped into that next up role and filled it easily, and then all, even up from there. 
And so like, that's where, like, I think for me, that started becoming the, the uh, sort of the template of these guys come in and they're going to be great for us. But the first injury that comes, they're going to take the powder and get away from it for, you know, for, mm-hmm. to, to lengthen their careers. And I think in, in some ways that's, again, some of the stuff, it wasn't any one thing that brought ECW down. Uh, it, I think it was a like a whole bunch of just cascading events like that, that sort of got beyond our control. Uh, things like the nine one one incident, uh, uh, Stevie's broken neck, uh, the the fans and the you know the potential lawsuits that were coming on some of these things. You couldn't alter the product without altering what it meant to the fans, and so we were sort of painted into that for that seven years. But boy, what that seven years produced was, I think, pretty prodigious. Uh, just picking up on one brief thing I mentioned before, uh, I I can't remember who said that. Stevie was possibly in line for the ECW world title. But do you think at this time, 97, he was popular enough that it would have been a good decision for the company? With the right trajectory, absolutely. Um, He couldn't have stepped right out. Well, so far be it from a second guess any of Paul's booking, but uh, the fans knew that Stevie could get in there and put on a good solid match. And he hadn't yet been mixed in with the top guys yet. He was still just like sort of playing around along the periphery. I don't think if you wanted to legitimize as a champion that he could have stepped right out of the blue world order and into the, uh, you know, top spot. But I think you could have, you know, you could have segmented his, uh, his segue from that to that next thing. And it wouldn't, and, and I think that's probably what was part of that three-way dance. Cause when you first sent me the link, I'd forgotten about that match. And my thought I'm watching it was, this is a weird makeup, like, you know, Stevie and funk and Sandman. It's the seemed left field, right field, center field. Uh, but they made it work. And I, again, I think it's a testament to Stevie's working uh, and all three of them playing off of each other properly. Uh, there was a great chemistry there in that. As crazy as that sounds, because it was such a herky-jerky sort of spot-stylized st- spot match meant to showcase, say, Sandman and Funk, and then Funk and uh, Stevie, then Stevie and Sandman. <laughs> those are hard matches to pull off, and I thought they did a really good job, especially considering one of those guys was basically, at that point, really an enhancement role. And, you know, show they could be a lot more than that. And from there, Terry Funk wins and goes straight into the main event. I actually want to talk, uh, uh, you to talk about the match entirely, but I want to add this very briefly, is that it's nice to see a match in ECW that's entirely based on emotion rather than the big moves and the crowds yes. actually biting on it as well. Yeah, which again shows you that, that it, you know, it's the old thing, if you build it, they'll come. Uh, the fans were there for Terry Funk. Hey, everybody in that building, Terry came and exuded this legendary status. He didn't brag about it. He didn't flaunt it. He walked into the room with it. It was his overcoat, and it was with him at every point uh, because every wrestling fan, including every one of the guys in the dressing room, were damn well aware of what a legendary Funk, Funk family was. And I think everybody in the building, uh, fan-wise, and in the back, too, uh, we were quite aware of how extraordinary it was what Terry was doing at this point, at this age. He never once ever came and said, hey, let's tone that back a bit. Uh, let's take this out. I can't do that anymore. Uh, and again, being in that same neighborhood range now, uh, 
it's it's all inspiring it really is it's it sort of deflates you a bit because you think like man you know funk went out there and did it as banged up as he was as old as he was at that point um and back-to-back matches one the first one which is not an easy match to carry off so <clears throat> you know not only is it the the oh my god the omg that terry funk wins the belt to me it's the oh my god he goes out and has this incredible three-way dance one of which you know let's face it hack's not known as being one of the you know the the ground and pound uh wrestling hold guys in our business and stevie wasn't at that point and then to step right into that next match and raven at his peak i think you also can see raven at his at his very best of his career that he's taken a 53 year old guy at this point who's just had a pretty grueling semi-main event and taking him and getting him over. There's not a sense or semblance in that match when you're watching Funk versus uh, Raven for the title that Raven's taking it easy. Raven's, you know, notch the match way down to the contrary. On Scotty, he's looking for the as best as he can make it, you know, and probably, you know, Funk working to challenge himself to stay up to that. It, it really is one of the modern day wonders of our business in that stifling building, uh, back-to-back matches like that at his age and to come away. And then after he wins it and the emotion that he's wearing, uh, you know, Vicky coming to the ring and the crying and the blue, his daughter's coming and everything. Uh, it, it was all about as perfectly booked a segment as, as I could think of. And with a guy that should not be able to, at this stage of his career, the injuries and the age and, you know, all those things that go with that. Uh, that is like one of the seven wonders of the wrestling world that Funk was able to go out and perform in that building to that degree and get that kind of emotion by the audience afterwards. Just absolutely jaw-dropping. Yeah, I'll uh, add that Paul Heyman, obviously Terry Funk's there, uh, Tommy Dreamer, the Eliminators, others uh, thanked the fans after the show. And is it true that the generator blew seconds after the pay-per-view went off air? Yes, yes. I, I didn't realize until you said it, and then right as you did, I remember thinking like, Ooh, 20 minutes ago, this would have killed it, right? I mean, that would have been the end of the pay-per-view. And without giving that capstone to it, because again, that that the outro of the the funk winning the belt segment, um, it was so masterful uh and rung every bell it needed to times two or three or four. Had that power gone off and we hadn't delivered that gem at the end it's uh you could see what a what a black eye that could have been for ecw the fact that we weren't able to carry it through because you know what it would have been uh well they had doing a shoestring budget they can't really play with the big boys can't really hang those kind of things and but yes it blew it i think it was the truck that blew did the lights go off in the arena so the lights went off and just Oh God! They probably thought the, the audience probably thought it was Sabu coming back out or something. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm sure. You know, thinking some kind, some cap on top of all this greatness. Uh, uh, yeah, it was. I again, what if you if you hadn't mentioned it to me, I wouldn't have remembered. But as you remembered, I remember the just the gut sinking feeling of Ooh, if this had been just a few minutes earlier, you know. Uh, so we've got a bit of follow up on the pay-per-view. Uh, it was suggested okay. that you were going to feud with Brian Lee on the road after Barely Legal, but he was dealing with a neck injury at the time. The two of you never... I don't think you ever did a singles match, did you? Uh, no. You tell me... Oh, okay. Uh, Brian would head to the WWF late June and form DOA with Crush and the Harris Twins. What caused Brian Lee's neck injury? 
I don't know. Uh, the end, Brian's end time <clears throat> in ECW, uh, we got along great. Uh, Brian is not a conversationalist or wasn't there. Uh, not, not that he was off-putting in any way. He up with the boys and sit around and talk. But Brian wasn't one to sit around and say, hey, this happened to me or Paul did that or you know whatever. So he was there. He was part of the triple threat that reconstituted triple threat with Candido. <clears throat> and some short period later, excuse me, he was gone. He just disappeared. And I hadn't seen him again until about a year or two ago. That was the next time I'd see him at a Russell Cade, Russell Khan, somewhere like that. Um, yeah, he was there and he was gone. And like, like we used to joke that we we're going to put him on a milk carton or something. And like, whatever happened to, to Brian Lee? Um, I think he saw the writing on the wall uh, that, you know, Paul was using him from the triple threat as being the glorified enhancement guy. If he wanted to get somebody over, he'd feed him to Brian, put him over on Brian and Brian would go. And uh, my guess would be that probably most places know how these things operate. Vince party contacted him or vice versa. And Vince said, come on up. We got something for you, um, which would eventually be the fake taker thing. Oh, no, no. Similar that was, build, that, that was actually beforehand. That was in ninety. Well, that was before. That yeah. was ninety four. That was yes. That was That's right. Before, and the yeah. and the the uh, the the gimmick was after the, uh, the uh, DOA, the biker thing. DOA, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, you know, I'm sure that Vince probably had that in mind when he's talking to him. Yeah, he Vince comes up with an idea, and then he he looks for the the, the peg to put into that hole. Well, who best fits that? And uh, yeah, but Brian just disappeared overnight. It was like he he was here, and then he wasn't. And none of us had ever heard any story as to why. At least I didn't, and none of the boys that I spoke to heard anything. Uh, uh, when you saw him a year or two ago, did you ever like pin him down and say, listen, why did you disappear for 20 no. years? No. He was walking, I think, to or from the bathroom, back to or from his table, and it was like, hey, Brian, you know, like, like just a wave thing, and didn't see him again after that. But, um, you know, it's, it's like I was not privy and, and really didn't get my nose in to like what other people were making and you know, like, was he being paid enough, not being paid enough? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure knowing Brian, like I know him because he's one of the guys, he's a good guy and a good hand. It was probably, you know, like Paul giving him some, that's all I can afford or whatever. And then getting a call to or from uh, one of the other federations um, that probably pulled him out of there. You know, and thinking, like, hey, I'm not gonna, at this stage of my career, I don't want to be the guy that get other guys over. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's not a good or bad thing. It's what people want to think for each of their careers. Each one of us is ultimately in charge of our careers. So, now did barely legal, and this is I, this is a bit of a difficult question, really. But did barely legal inadvertently? Yes, it was a success for ECW. Begats more pay per views, of course. But did it bring any maybe wanted attention from the big two, WWF and WCW at the time, who started looking, thinking, "Hey, they're on pay per view. They're a." bigger company a platform to some of the big wigs in both those companies to see the talent there and mm. maybe start cherry picking them i'm thinking very specifically raven in this yeah yeah i for sure i mean because i think up to that point that you know what was the phrase that uh uh jerry larkin ecw extremely crappy wrestling i think that really was the genuine uh belief uh or feel from the, those other people uh, about ECW, not realizing, you know, again, like other the people that want to sort of pigeonhole this into, well, everybody just went to the ring with a pile of garbage and hit each other with it. 
Well, I think if you watch back, you'll see it really wasn't that. Um, that did happen at times. Uh, but it, when it happened, there was a reason for it to happen, and it made sense for it to happen. Um, when I was in WWF in 95, Vince never said to me the three letters ECW. He would say, when you were in the bingo hall company, the minor pond, the small the blood and guts company, the minor leagues, things like that, but never said ECW. So I think probably us getting to pay-per-view was a bit of a shocker uh, to them, like, holy hell, because at that time it was a quarter million dollar upfront fee. Um, that it, it was showing that we were on the rise, that there was n nothing suggesting that we were going to be suddenly challenging Vince on WrestleMania weekend or anything, but he saw if it's getting over, Vince is savvy this way. If something like that, that that's getting over, I've always believed it to be this shit wrestling, but I can see the fans love this person. They love that person. This person has heat. Uh, he would certainly see the value in that. And, uh, and would know to play off it as would Bischoff, right? They would know that these were key players, hence public enemy and Sandman and peaches, all them leaving. Um, I don't think, other than Rob Van Dam, who I still think, even though he's pushed fairly heavily in WWF, I don't think he was pushed as far as he should have been pushed, considering his talent level. Because uh, I think Rob is a special inside talent, and in ring talent, uh, because they're not the biggest guys, right? So you're six foot ten and nine thousand pounds. Uh, uh, he didn't create uh, Vince. I mean, and I think that there's there's a bit of a, that into it. Other than Robbie, I can't think of anybody that Vince cherry picked and took up there and just made a plethora of money with. It, to me, in hindsight, it was almost more of let's get them out of ECW so we can sort of put them under our thumb as opposed to letting them just go off on their tangents. And and it, in hindsight, it probably worked. With uh, with that being said, I do want to focus on Raven leaving for WCW very shortly afterwards. And I think, and I hate to say this, I hope I'm not taking... Uh, uh, I think Raven was even inviting other people to go to WCW with him at the time. I don't know if it was Stevie, I don't know if it was somebody else. This is something, as I say, I'm just plucking out the air. But mm. um, how big of a loss was uh, Raven to the ECW? Huge, huge. He brought to the table a uh, an acumen of the sport that was very different from what the franchise character gave. There's no time you ever watch either of those two characters and go, oh, these guys are really birds of a feather, right? Uh, Raven character, you know, the, the brooding, grungy, hair metal band type character, hip on his shoulder, always whining and complaining like the Gen Xers did. Uh, you know, that was a, it was so timely and so relevant that I don't think had you left the belt on me, my character would have sold and drew in as many of those people in the counterculture, I guess we'll say, as say Raven would. Um, Raven had an incredible has an incredible grasp of the business. And when he came to ECW, uh, he he demonstrated that that he could deliver this in a different way than being the yelling, screaming heel or uh you know, just one vein or two veins or one trick or two tricks. Uh, Raven came in there and, and went a completely different direction than, say, the franchise character would have. <clears throat> albeit uh, still drew, albeit still held the company together and still supplanted that rule once the franchise was gone, that there is still a top player who's been around the business for quite a while, knows his way around the ring. And, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, the, the losing him, obviously, was a, a big kick in the gut for us. 
Paul at the time, I'm sure, would have been saying, nah, that's no big deal. We're not going to stop him from making money. And, you know, again, playing that high rule thing, we're going to play by the rules or we're not going to let him see us sweat. And meanwhile, I think to the fans, they expected ECW, if any promotion, should fire back on that, right? Immediately, he took one of our top stars. Well, now we're going for your jugular. And, uh, you know, again, in hindsight, looking how there was a collusion between Paul and, and Vince <clears throat> and how there was this non-attempt to stave off anybody that was leaving for, say, WCW or WWF, um, I think that, you know, that for them to be able to get somebody raving out of there, I think Vince would have seen that as a big win. Like we were able to cherry pick him away. Um, and obviously it would be a big uh, letdown to ECW because if you take my reign as world champion and Raven's reign as world champion, you've got a big chunk of that seven-year run covered, right? It was, it was pretty specific to the two of us. Plus, when Paul would put us – excuse me. Excuse me. Um our chemistry was really fantastic. We trusted each other. Um, he went out and delivered. It didn't matter up or down. Uh, Scotty was always able to deliver on his end of things. And, uh, you know, I, I think that played really well for ECW because it was such a drastically different character than the, the just previous world champion. And, again, going back to the Bill Watts thing, it's different is good. You know, different and proficient is great when they can still give a great promo albeit the inverse universe of, say, a franchise promo. I can't do what he does, and I'm pretty sure he can't do what I did with the characters and promos. No less compelling and no less articulate and no no less drawable and uh, doing it. He could talk fans into building those great promos. Half the people in that audience completely identified with Raven. They were Raven acolytes. And, you know, in, them, in their head, they're just like him, you know, there's a lot of trust fund babies out there. We know now for sure, like Tony Khan, right? That we're in the, in the, in the uh, buildings quite a bit watching ECW. And so when you see a Raven character that goes out, excuse me, goes out and can compel the audience in a completely different way than the franchise character would have done it. To me, that's good. You know, that you, you know, you, you can do it a different way and it gives the fans yet a different flavor. Yeah, when I said before uh, Raven and maybe tried to invite somebody else, I was thinking it's somewhere in my head. No, it's Canyon? two. Canyon. It, no, it's two lines down that I wrote it. That's why. I could, anyway, so I'm an idiot. Uh, I'll 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 explain that in a second. Uh, Raven leaves for WCW uh, a few months later. Three year deal at two hundred twenty five thousand dollars per year. Uh, a couple of months after. Uh, the pay-per-view, and apparently he and Tommy Dreamer nearly got into a fight over Ravens leaving ECW and asking if Dreamer wanted to join him in WCW. Mm. Uh, I didn't really... I mean, I knew that, like, Dreamer was, like, super loyal to ECW, but, uh, like, throwing down over it, that's... Uh, yeah. That, that's taken it to a, a pretty uh, strong degree. Yeah, yeah. It's all... Tommy always seemed uh, very bought in to ECW, he also was very eager to learn. Like he would constantly come and ask me, especially in those first six, seven, eight months, he would come to me and, you know, uh, well, how do I get these fans to stop booing me? And, you know, this happened and that happened or whatever. And we just, you know, plan it and sell it to him in pieces that uh, a baby face gets over by losing if it's done the right way. Um, 
you know, and, and so he learned a lot of that coming up. And and just in general, his personality is obviously way more what my soma called chill today than say mine or Bam Bam's was. Um, you know, so uh to me it's there's never one thing there's not a single wrestler in the business that can go out and say everybody should copy me to a T and we're all gonna be great. Because each one of us brings our own skill sets. Uh the company sees something in that maybe somebody else doesn't see. And, uh, you know, for me, Raven, to bring it back to your question, Raven and watching the first promo he did there as, a, uh, uh, you know, his, his goth character, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the whining, complaining, he, he looked like he had been selectively bred from that generation. These are the kids that grew up listening to Nirvana, the world sucks, everybody's taking advantage of me. And to me, I've always said the heel that's dangerous is the heel that can go out there and tell you he's going to rape an 80-year-old woman, explain it, and you walk away going, makes perfect sense. Because this is really sociopathic thinking, right? I'm going to go out and do some, harm somebody. and But those ECW fans in their own got it. And Scotty's delivery was so different from anything that came before him. That's where I think he, he really showed his true promise in that he can come in here, he can step right into that role, deliver this amazing promos, that the fan is going to stay. They're not going to turn uh, channel surf during. They're going to want to stop and listen to what he has to say. And because it was so diametrically opposite the way I was doing promos, I thought that they could definitely have legs, and it proved out that he would. I uh, want to bring up the Dreamer beats Raven on his final night before he goes to WCW, and that is also the night that Jerry Lawler turns up. You know, the lights go out, and then the lights come on, and then Jerry Lawler with Jim Cornette yes. and Rob Van Dam and Sabu and Fonzie attack Dreamer to start a new feud, sort of exactly like we were talking about on Barely Legal with um, yep. uh, Taz and Sabu. Uh, you know, you get yes. what you want for a minute, and then the whole dynamic changes. This is also the day that uh, Dreamer gets caned in the balls by Jerry Lawler, and they have to drain blood out of his testicle. Oh, yeah, not fun, right? Mm. Uh, well, I, I can imagine, and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be volunteering for that particular experiment. Let me tell you, I'm going to mention two more <laughs> yeah. things, and then we will cut this podcast off, and I'll let you go home. Uh, a week after the pay per view, and it's wonderfully on the date of four twenty, April twentieth. Uh, Tommy Rich and Doug Gilbert spent the night in prison for being arrested by uh, having possession of weed. <laughs> well, what a what a different world we're living in, huh? <laughs> um, you mean you mean you mean to tell me they were those those guys were actually smoking pot? I don't know. I don't know enough to cast aspersions on uh, Doug Gilbert, <laughs> but I can definitely believe to, uh, to, uh, 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 Tommy Rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think all of the above. Yeah, were probably uh, capable of doing that, and probably. Uh, <laughs> probably partaking and <laughs> inhaling so yes yeah not like bill clinton for goodness sake uh listen yes, uh, yeah. uh, why don't we end this on a nice fun story on uh wildfire tommy rich somebody yes. say something about fired up oh yeah the, the first real oh i thought i lost it call came in and went back yeah. uh the first real drawing modern drawing icon in wrestling where wrestling was going to go in the, in the 20, 25 years beyond Tommy Rich. <clears throat> he was the template, right? That baby face that could go out there, <clears throat> get his ass kicked, never die, and sooner or later start making that back. That gave all the basic key tenets of great baby faces, right? Heart, 
never give up, never say die, can always come back. Um, Tommy personified that and did it at a time when he was, what, 22, 3, 4 years old, still green, but in the ring working with really great talents. And that explosive, fiery comeback, uh, sell his ass off, get the color, get the sauce, whatever. Again, like like uh, Ricky Morton and R Ricky uh, Steamboat, <clears throat> he was capable of getting that, that crowd, the girls in that crowd, to the edge of their seat, tears in their eyes, pleading for him, right? And those are the things that, you know, like we've talked about all these different facets of the business that have changed. The promoters, as they were putting him up the card, could see this gravity drawing to him. You know, there's this young kid, very young by business standards, uh, seemingly coming from no place. And all of a sudden he's in these top matches with you know, your Andersons and your Abdullahs and guys like that. And, you know, always getting that line in and always getting that comeback in. Uh, didn't matter how much heat there was when you were beating Tommy Dreamer or uh, uh, Tommy Rich down you knew in your heart of hearts it's just a matter of time before he starts somebody say something about firing up right and it's going to be time to go and crowd the girls the, and then the sooner or later the guys coming with it right here's a here's one of the good old southern boys one of us going out there and doing it and uh you know it was uh it shows a lot of the things that we see, see much later in the business the demographics that that, that you're trying to hit with that uh, the things you're not trying to hit with it, uh, where you think that character will play or won't play. Um, I would dare say that anybody at, a, at an NWA show at that time or a Georgia Championship Wrestling show at that time was pretty much died in the wool of Southerner and everything that means. And so you never got the the thought in your or feeling it when you're watching Tommy Wildfire Rich that you were seeing a wannabe like Shane Douglas and, and uh, Johnny Ace as skaters, right? Uh, you knew he was the real deal. You could tell by the way he spoke. You could tell by the things he said, the anecdotes he'd give, and the examples that he would give. Uh, Southerners have a very uh, stylized and pronounced way of expressing things, and he had that. And so everybody watching him that was in that area at the time in Georgia and South Carolina and all those places knew instinctively this guy is a Southerner. He's one of us. And so when he'd get his ass kicked and colored up and everything else, and he'd start making that comeback that gave support, love, respect, and call out to every redneck out there watching wrestling. If he can do it, I can do it. So I was brilliant. You know, and I, I'm sure there might've been one or two before, but he was that first big baby face money draw as a guy that wasn't really exactly over yet. Like on paper, you'd say, well, we still need another year or two to build him or we can just throw him head first into this angle and it works like spades. So the latter obviously is hmm. they did, not we. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a couple more questions here, but I'm not going to bother. I'm going to actually save them from a future episode. I'm going to do the sign off now. Thank you very much for watching. We, uh, by the time this podcast is out, we will know what it's called. We do yes. know that it's out on Tuesdays uh, that I just decided yesterday, as we would call this. I know it's very confusing. Um, Shane, I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I'm actually going to tell you this now. Uh, we can do any person you want. We can do any show you want. We can do any format you want. So I'll leave you with this. You think of, uh, give us an example of like, it can be any, like any Raw, it can be any NWA, it can be any ECW. You pick. 
and uh, we'll mm. both watch that. I'll come up with some questions, and we'll uh, have a good old podcast and a chat over that. But for now, sweet. Thank you very much for watching. We'll catch you again next week. And Shane, appreciate it. Triple threat, baby. Appreciate it, brother.